So, Ray, what are we going to talk about today? Well, uh, I was inspired by your, your prompt to have a conversation about the, the recent um, spate of accusations of sexual harassment in the media. And I thought it might be useful as, as folks who work with the body um, and as folks who are trying to incorporate a social justice lens in the work that we do, um, that it might be helpful to talk about sexual harassment as not about sex and not about gender as much as it is about power so that we can link the behaviors that go with sexual harassment to the kinds of other forms of discrimination, of microaggressions, and abuses of power. I thought it would be particularly useful for us within the, the somatics community to have a look at how that translates on a body level, particularly with respect to nonverbal communication, and what we already know about the nonverbal communication research that we can draw on to help us understand what's going on in these interactions and how people are being um, violated without necessarily there being a conscious awareness on the person, on the part of the person who's doing the aggression, that that's in fact what they're doing. So um, I think that then leads us to having a look at the issue of boundaries and how boundaries get navigated on a body level and how we can become more attuned to issues of boundaries and how power affects our capacity to navigate boundaries. And 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 last, I'm really intrigued by some some research that I've recently encountered um, about privilege and power and the studies that they've done, um, both neuroscientific studies and social behavioral studies that suggest that um, having power, particularly for extended periods of time, actually causes neurological changes that impair the person's ability to read the nonverbal signals of others. So, um, if we can if we can touch on those territories, that would be great. Wow. So so um, you know just from the um, overview that you give, um, it feels like we're already squarely in the midst of it. That what yes. we're looking at is dynamics of power, um, yes. where um, what happens is. Boundaries can be violated um, yes. as part of these dynamics. Exactly. Um, and, so and, and you put it, you know, with the, the, the third point you made, you put it in a context where, in a way, it's something that might be inherent in the dynamics of power in the sense that, you know, as this research suggests, Something happened where power, you know, quote unquote, corrupts uh, yes. by preventing uh, people in power from hearing those cues that yes. they normally hear. Exactly. Um, and and inter interestingly enough, in the, in the research that I was reading, um, the authors were suggesting that it was exactly those capacities to read others 
particularly to read them non-verbally and to pick up on those very subtle but important non-verbal cues about what people were interested in or what they felt comfortable with or what they felt motivated and inspired by, that in fact, perhaps at least in part, um, contributed to their rise to power in the first place, was that they were good at reading a room. They were good at navigating interpersonal relationships such that they inspired confidence and won trust and could get people on board to go along with what they wanted. Um, but then I think part of what happens is that people in power stop getting the nonverbal cues of discomfort or disagreement or resistance and refusal because they hold power and people are afraid to show how they really feel. And so people in power, I, I would argue, and I would, I would suggest that that's part of what the, the authors of these studies might be suggesting, is that people in power get so used to people um, pandering to them, saying yes to them, refusing to disagree, refusing to stand up, refusing to um, push back, um, both verbally and non-verbally, that they stop reading, and they st- and and in fact, the the neuroscientific studies are the most compelling. They actually show that power causes a form of brain damage, and they've done scans that suggest that that um, these changes are observable and um, and long lasting. So um, I don't want to I don't want to overextend their findings, but I would I would suggest that maybe part of what they're discovering is what we've been working with in the somatics world for, for so many years, which is our capacity for kinesthetic empathy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, certainly it changes the field of inquiry from mm-hmm. outrage at a given person's abusive behavior yes. um, into looking at it in a more systematic way. And... Yes. Um, in a way, having a reading of a system of power, yes. which then affects people in different ways and damages the people in power um, as much, as well, not necessarily as much, but as well yeah. as the people who they abuse. And so yeah. the um, the question is not one of outrage of how a given person can do that, not just that, but maybe looking more um, deeply into the dynamics of power itself. Yes, and and the the damage that inequitable social systems of power, the damage that that does to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, part of part of why I think it's useful to 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 look at. How does power operate? And how does it operate on a body level? How does it, how does it manifest non-verbally? How does it manifest somatically? Is that when you start focusing on the issue of power and the relational dimensions of it, um, it becomes possible to make links from sexism, which is sort of our re-emergent topic du jour, Right? Mm-hmm. Because yep. of the media. Yep. Um, but make links from sexism to racism. And how white people 
have the same kind of stupidity born of privilege with respect to people of color. Mm-hmm. And people of color go, how can you be doing this? How could, like, are you doing this on purpose? Like, are you just evil and, and cruel? And white people going, no, I had no idea. I'm really sorry. Not all of them, but some of them. Yes. And, and that stupidity that, that I think, I, I would suggest that this research is pointing to. So it's not about letting anyone off the hook or, or letting ourselves off the hook for taking responsibility for the damage that we do to others. But it maybe gives us some insight into how we could be doing such damage so unconsciously. And if we don't recognize that even if our motivations may be pure, that our behaviors and our impacts, in fact, do cause damage, that gives us some way of saying, oh, okay, right, I get it. Um, I just interacted with this person in a way that they found offensive or harmful or dismissive or insulting. And I didn't mean to be any of those things, but I get that, be- I get that because I hold privilege in relation to that person, that's made me stupid about what I'm doing. And I need to educate myself. I need to begin to um, reestablish that sensitivity and that awareness and that attunement to what's going on on a body-to-body level. So, so I want and to I want to um, uh, use use two words that um, uh, sure. you mentioned: stupid yeah. and sensitivity. And, <laughs> yes. um, and so, in that sense, um, stupid is something that does not come from lack of intellectual ability, no. but it's a blindness um, yes. and an insensitivity that uh-huh. is bred by the circumstances of differential of power. Yes, it's how we're socialized. Yeah. We are, we are, we learn that there are some things we don't have to pay attention to. And, and we believe that we don't have to pay attention to them because our lives have shown us that it is not a threat to us to fail to pay attention to them. And so again, I want to, to, to highlight this because um, you know, the way we function efficiently is that we don't pay attention to what we don't need to pay attention to. And so when there is no danger, then we have no reason to pay attention to something. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that in principle, except when it actually does hurt people. But so what's happening is we miss the signal that what we're doing is hurting people. Yes. And the other thing that that I think the research in nonverbal communication has shown us is that the process of being socialized into um, systems of power that are inequitable and unjust also compromises the capacity of the people who hold less power to actually show how they really feel. So that process of socialization, for example, um, someone who is as socialized as female, I um, learned 
to the point where they felt natural to me. Postures and gestures and nonverbal behaviors that signaled submission. Yeah. And although there's variation cross-culturally in what these signals are, in the culture in which I was raised, everyone read them as submissive, and I learned to enact them without even thinking about it in the presence of men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, as, as someone who's being read as female, someone who identifies and has been socialized as male comes up, begins to cross what might be a boundary. I signal submission. They proceed. And they don't realize that they've crossed a boundary because I haven't signaled, stop, buddy. Now, I'm not suggesting that that wasn't the case in all of these situations where, we, where we're, we're reading in the, in the media. I know that at least in, in a good number of them, there were clear signals and they were violated anyway. Um, and I think what I was just saying about how we learn behaviors of dominance and submission on a body level um, still still carries some weight and is a useful thing to consider when yeah. we're looking at these dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're not just, uh, you know, simply talking about what happened and certainly not talking about specific instances where there was a, a, a very clear violation where... Um, the person insisted that, that there was a violation. But what you're talking about, which is a little bit chilling, uh, is to realize how with, without um, knowing it, we are actually replicating the structures of oppression. Um, yeah. Because we are so bathing into them that we take them for granted and we replicate them, we embody them uh, yes. in our day-to-day behavior. Yep, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. And and I agree with you, Serge. I find it a little chilling too. Mm-hmm. That that I am I am in my own habitus, my own um, array of appearance, body image, how I speak, how I move, how I dress, um, how I, you know, express myself, that I am reproducing the power dynamics that I learned about what's okay, what's appropriate, what's normal for who I am as a member of a series of social groups. And how hard it is to question that. Because what happens is that that social norms start to feel like they're natural and right when in fact they are only constructed. Yeah, yeah. So it is both chilling and liberating. Um, <laughs> yes. And the liberating part is the sense that as we realize how prisoner we are, Mm-hmm. Of the environment we live in um, yeah. is also the sense that you know being mindful of it has the potential to free us yes um, and to uh, that in a way to the extent to which we imagine ourselves to be free um, we only 
are more likely to perpetuate, um, you know, what has been ingrained in us, but mm-hmm. to the extent that we are more aware of how we are determined by all the influences we have absorbed in being raised, in living in a certain society, and, you know, the minute details of how the postures, how we dress, how we signal things on a moment-by-moment basis, uh, Mm -hmm. we are actually more likely to become a little bit more aware of the power dynamics and change them. Exactly. And um, speaking, speaking as one somatic practitioner to another, I, I argue that the the place to begin that process of awareness and um, attention is in the body. That um, one of one of the things that I'm encountering a lot as I'm starting to explore the somatic experience of privilege, whereas before I was mostly focused on the somatic experience of oppression. Mm-hmm. What does privilege feel like in the body? And, and, you know, again and again, what I, what I come up with and what I encounter in my, in my own explorations is that privilege feels like nothing. It feels like comfort. It feels like normal. It feels like no, no blips on my radar. No feedback loops that need attending to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so maybe let me just um, expand a little bit on this. Um, yeah. That I want to put it in the context that you know the way we function as human beings or animals in a way is that yeah. uh, in order to function efficiently, um, we simply cannot attend to everything that happens. Enormous much of what we do functions below awareness, yeah. so that you know consciousness might. One possible way to think of it is a dashboard in which you have a little signal, you have a little red light that says something needs to be paid attention to. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is that privilege is one of those situations where there's no red light because everything's going well. So why would you pay attention to that? And so uh, it's going to be below awareness. Exactly. That we... That the, those monitors are not particularly well attuned. That we haven't cultivated um, sensors for that because we haven't needed to, and we're not doing regular readings anymore if we ever were. Mm-hmm. Because, as you say, it, it it hasn't been an issue because it hasn't been a threat because we've held the privilege that inoculates us from threat that protects us from that in the ways that people with less privilege don't have that protection. So, for example, one of the things that the nonverbal communication research shows us is that people in subordinated social groups are much better at reading the body language of people with more power than the other way around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, because your survival depends on it. Exactly. Whereas if you're holding privilege that protects you from, from the threat of others with less privilege, then um, you can afford to be relatively oblivious. And as you suggest, why wouldn't you? It's metabolically expensive mm-hmm. to be paying attention to something that's 
that doesn't threaten you, that doesn't, um, that couldn't have some negative effect that you need to be prepared for and able to respond to. So, where does, where does that leave us as a society, as a, as a, as a conglomeration of cultures, and I use the term cultures very broadly to include, um, cultures of gender and ability and religion, not just race or ethnicity. Um, that in a world that's getting increasingly smaller, where our survival will depend on our capacity to work with one another, to collaborate, and to not inflame conflict by doing unconscious damage to one another. That in fact, our situation down the road, continuing, well not even down the road, I think we're seeing it now, I think we're seeing it in the United States in terms of race relations. It's here with us now. The consequences of being, of, of white people being oblivious to the damage that they enact on people of color every day, the, the consequences of that oblivion are starting to cost us and they will continue to cost us. So in fact, we'd be wise to shift our paradigm to something a little more inclusive and to recognize that in the long run, that oblivion does do damage to the people who hold privilege as well. Because what it does is it creates a world full of conflict and strife and enmity and the kind of um, ideological and and cultural divides that at some point feel quite um, impossible to bridge. Right, right. So we're talking about a shift, uh, not just in attitude, but also in how we pay attention to things, because um, we evolved to pay attention to things where there is a need to pay attention to at the present moment. Yes. And what we're talking about here is there is a very real threat but the threat is not a clear and present danger in the moment. It is actually quite manageable moment by moment, even day by day or week by week, um, yes. to behave without noticing. Yes. Um, but long term, not just long, I don't mean long term because there is a clear and present danger right now, but the clear and present danger is not necessarily affecting a white person in this moment. Yes. So there is a possibility to ignore the danger even as it's happening. And it's a yes. shift from what alerts us moment by moment to an awareness of the danger even though there is no immediate instant moment threat. Yes. And and I would argue to, to sort of come full circle and, and come back to the um, the prompt for this conversation around um, sexual harassment in the media. Um, I can't speak to this as as a man, but it would it would make sense to me that the the focus in the media on the the 
significant consequences to the men in power who have been um, called out on their behavior and the loss of employment, prestige, connection, loss of power for those examples um, might in fact serve as a, as a template, not just for men going, oh, maybe I should be paying attention to this because maybe it does apply to me and maybe the consequences are going to come home to roost sooner than I think. I would, I would argue that all of us can do that wherever our own particular social identifications give us privilege. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about having, in a way, um, this being a call to paying attention to what normally doesn't get noticed is the experience of privilege or relative privilege. Yes. So, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. Um, I have I have just recently um, developed a set of of three recommendations for that process. Um, and, and the process really is about regaining the capacity for kinesthetic empathy across a, a whole range of relational situations. But, but those, those three steps, um, I always recommend that people start, and this might sound a little strange, but I always recommend that people start with where they have been wounded, where the dynamics of social power have um, caused damage to them, where they haven't held power, where they have felt subordinated or marginalized or um, abused at the hands of others who held more power than they did. Um, and I think that most of us understand some of those dynamics as they've manifested in growing up as a child and the fact that we're um, in a world with adults who have more power than we do. And we know that feeling of helplessness and um, having other people decide for us how things are going to be. Um, but I would, I would argue that that even those of us who seem to hold a lot of privilege um, in today's society, so I'm talking white, straight, male, able-bodied, um, all the rest of the sort of indicators of privilege that we're, we're attuned to today, that in my work with folks who hold those kinds of privilege, in, in asking them to look deeply on where they've been wounded by other people and what that's been like and how that's felt. That they in fact have sometimes, sometimes just really deeply poignant, touching, compelling stories to tell about the wounds that they have um, experienced as a member of, of, you know, a hierarchical society and that understanding what it feels like to be wounded can become the basis 
for understanding what other people feel like when we wound them. Yeah. So, so, so um, that actually, that's a very uh, powerful point, which might also give us a different perspective on the blindness to um, um, to social clues. Um, that, you know, if we are reasonably healthy, mm-hmm. um, we can remember the moments and situations where we've been wounded and from there develop empathy. Um, if the wound is traumatic, it could be the result that people who have been wounded this way are absolutely find it unbearable to bear the sense of being powerless and from that place refuse to see powerlessness in themselves and actually are turned off by people who they experience as powerless. Yes. Because it's triggering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I, I take it as a given. And I didn't used to be able to do this because I didn't have any research backing me up, but I feel like I do have some now. I take it as a given that oppression is traumatic. Yeah. And yeah. and part of um, the power of somatic work for me is its capacity to help survivors of trauma learn how to reestablish some capacity to regulate themselves when environmental conditions threaten to overwhelm that capacity. And I think, I think in, in lots of ways, that's that skill that those of us who've worked with trauma survivors in other ways, not necessarily trauma survivors in the, in the context of, of social justice, I think that's one of the things that we've learned how to do and we've learned the benefits of is that once we know where our wounds are, once we've um, begun to care for them and develop resources um, to manage the kind of, you know, protective response of our nervous systems when we feel threatened, if we know that and have some resources in place to mitigate it, we're much less likely, I would argue, to be hyper-reactive to conflicts, to situations where, um, for example, a person, if a person of color calls me on something that I've done, if I haven't examined my own traumatic wounds from my own oppression, I would argue that I'm going to be way more likely to overreact and to need to defend because I can't tolerate the sensation of feeling as though I'm under attack again. Mm-hmm. So, healing from trauma, healing from the traumatic imprint of our own oppression, I think is is a, a necessary precursor to being able to hold and tolerate the critical feedback from others when we've been oppressive to them. Yeah, yeah. And so, 
um, to kind of put this together is the sense that societies as we know them are organized in a way that uses power um, oppressively. And there's mm-hmm. going to be differences between societies, obviously, but in yes. some way or another, um, you know, what we experience in social life is a structure which has some degree of oppression. Yes. And that um, as we are more aware of how we are affected by that oppression, we are actually better able to function in not becoming agents of oppression towards others. Exactly. And and to to bring this back to the body, um, for me, it's been critical to to learn and to unpack and to unlearn actually um, some really important things about um, my own um, my own response to oppressive interpersonal dynamics. And, and one is to be sensitive to boundaries and to, to have a really clear indicator light. <laughs> um, going back to that dashboard idea, to have a really clear and, and functioning indicator light in my own um, interoception for when a boundary has been crossed. And to do some real work, and, and this I think maybe is, is Part of being socialized as female, but I would argue that, that other people, um, other social groups experience this as well. To do some real healing work around body image. And, um, to begin to feel my body as always already okay. Um, and those, um, those two qualities, that, that capacity to go, ah, I'm already okay. However I am, already okay in my body. My body is fine. There's nothing, quote, unquote, wrong with it from a social perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can feel where my boundaries are. And if I can do those two things, um, that, that equips me reasonably well to move in the world and to handle, um, the, the power dynamics that come at me and that I, that I encounter and that I perpetuate, um, with some degree of skill in terms of how I, how do I navigate these things? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the other thing that I find incredibly helpful, and I, I almost always recommend undertaking the process of learning this in a safe environment and then generalizing the skills that you learn to a more challenging real life environment. But to regain um, some capacity to sense into and to freely move your body. So liberating your movement, liberating your body movement so that you're no longer constrained by the social norms of how bodies move, not just the social norms around how bodies look. Yeah. So so we are we are bodies and we are bodies in movement. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, we are staying at the level of abstraction if we're not paying attention to how, you know, 
our sense of ourselves and our sense of how we fit in society is reflected in how we feel about our bodies, our body image, how we move. Yes. yes. Exactly. Um, just to, to give you an example, um, a nonverbal communication research named Shulamith Wolfing, um, no, sorry, Shulamith Firestone, um, wrote an article uh, based on her research called The Smile Imperative. And and she was articulating a phenomenon that when I talk to women about it, they all go, oh, yeah, of course, I know this so well, <laughs> which is the nonverbal dynamic, particularly between men and women, <clears throat> but not always, that women smile. They smile when they're not happy. They smile as a gesture and an affirmation of submission and compliance. And the sort of the the cliche around that is for for many women, even just walking down the street in public, they've experienced total strangers, men who don't know them, telling them to smile. Mm. Smile, sweetheart. You look so much prettier when you smile. Mm. It's not about pretty. It's about, as a male in this society, I have the authority to control your body and to require you in your body to manifest an indicator of submission and compliance, and this is how we're going to do it. You're going to smile. And so I want to 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 shift a little bit when you say yes. control your body. Um, yes. But... In that sense, when you use the word body, is control your total self, control your soul, control your whole being. So exactly. it's yep. it's really not body in a sense of only a part of you, but body in the sense of every part of you. Yes, and here's how here's how somatic dissociation becomes part of the trauma response repertoire. Mm-hmm. When someone else is telling me how to look and how to behave at the level of total strangers telling me when and how much to smile, if my body no longer feels like mine, if I don't have control or authority over it, I leave. I begin to identify with parts of me that don't have anything to do with my body because my body is available for the control and use of other people. It's not a safe territory anymore. Now, you can see the, you know, the childhood abuse parallels and all the other trauma parallels, but it's true with oppression as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, I agree. Our bodies are ourselves, and we learn to have them not be ourselves when our bodies are taken over by people who don't have our best interests at heart. Yeah, yeah. So I want to to stay 
for a moment to absorb this. And as we're coming to an end, and it's a, again, it's a chilling note. And, mm. and, 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 and a welcome chilling note, you know, in a sense that drawing attention to pitfalls is actually, mm. you know, the best way that we can do something about it. But just, there is something very chilling about that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I'm not saying it to sugarcoat it, but just to absorb it. Yes. To, to see how we can be in relation to that. Yes. And, and to see if there are ways in which we can make it possible to tolerate the, the truth of it. Yeah. Yeah, not tolerating the experience, but tolerating the truth of it. Yes. Yeah, and fighting so that, against it. So that we can, so that we can transform the experience. Yeah. And so, you know, um, what what comes to me is a sense of um, um, wanting to share the experience, wanting to. Um, communicate with others about Mm -hmm. ways in which we have had a variety of this experience. Yes. Um, might be certainly a step. Yes. I think it's a, I think it's a really important step, Serge. Um, in, in the courses and the trainings that I do, um, one of the first steps after sort of bringing to awareness some of the features of of embodiment and oppression that, that you and I have just talked about. Um, the next step is to find a way to tell our body stories to one another, to, um, to give ourselves an opportunity to feel into what oppression has done to our own relationship with our bodies and to begin to articulate that and share that with one another and what i've what i've experienced over and over in these in these classes and 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 groups is the relief that that people don't feel alone in it anymore and it's it can be um remarkably relieving of shame yeah. to not feel alone yeah. To know that I'm not the only one in the room, even though I might not consider myself the same person socially as another group member, we share this experience of, yep, I know what that means to shut down. I know that feeling. And you shut down because of this, because of your social identifications, and I shut down for a very different set of social identifications, but we share that in common. We know what that feels like. Yeah, yeah. You know, I shut down for one identification, you shut down for another. But we have that in common, that we shut down. Yes. Yeah. And and that becomes, again, um, beginning to build the foundation for kinesthetic empathy with one another. Mm -hmm. I I can feel, I have felt what you have felt. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the hopeful part. Yeah. Yeah. So that, um, 
Yeah, we're facing the reality of the embodied experience of oppression, power. Yes. And as we are facing it, discovering how it affects all of us differently, but it affects all of us. Yes. There is a sound basis to rebuild. Yes. And, and to move from positions of self-interest to a position of collective well-being. And I think that, in fact, is the challenge of the planet at this particular moment in time. Are we going to make that choice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do we do it? And I would, I would suggest that starting with our bodies is one way to begin that process. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ray. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com. But it affects all of us. Yes. There is a sound basis to rebuild. Yes. And and to move from positions of self-interest to a position of collective well-being. And I think that, in fact, is the challenge of the planet at this particular moment in time. Are we going to make that choice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do we do it? And I would I would suggest that starting with our bodies is one way to begin that process. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ray. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.